Welcome to episode 273 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about the book of Titus. Let's dive in. Well, I am currently out of town, and so I just figured for this episode, I would go back a few weeks and play a sermon, kind of like we did last week, for you from the book of Titus. Now, on the LRZ campus, we've been working through a remodel project, and on Thursday mornings, I have the blessing of coming in and doing a study with those who have come in to volunteer and just bless us in this remodel season. Well, after much prayer, I just kind of decided it'd be fun to work through the book of Titus over these next several months. And so... I did a couple of studies with the guys doing an overview of the book and kind of getting into the first couple of verses. But since I had an opportunity to preach, I just took the next study in the book of Titus and decided that I would preach that for the church. Personally, it was deeply stirring and very pressing in my life. So I just pray that it'll be a blessing and encouragement for you. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to follow along as we jump into the first couple of verses, looking at this idea of Paul being a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, Titus chapter 1, and I know this is not Ephesians, so I I don't even know if we can fully preach this morning. Uh, But for our remodel project, uh, I've been doing a devotional on Thursday mornings, and what I've decided to do on uh, for the rest of the season, at least for my my mornings, is to begin to do a book study in the book of Titus. And if you ask why Titus, I don't know if I could give you even a clarity. I just felt uh, compelled, uh, I guess you could say, to just get into the book of Titus. And this last week, uh, we just kind of give a big overview of the book itself, and we're just kind of talking about okay, the purpose of Titus. Well, what was why was Paul even writing this letter, and who was Titus? And what I'd like to do this morning is just kind of give a quick recap of just some of the book stuff, uh, but want to dive into verse 1 with you uh, this morning. Uh, It is interesting that Paul, we know, had these young men that kind of followed him along. Uh, They were kind of like his little feet uncles, if you will, uh, who were following Uncle Mikey around everywhere. And uh, Paul was training up these young men, and and we we know like, you know, there was Timothy, there was Silas, uh, there was Titus, and so there were these young men who would follow Paul around, and they were trained up, and they were uh, basically uh, mentored by Paul himself. And Paul, as a missionary, as an apostle, would go into these places that he would establish a church, typically after a week or two, once the church, you know, these people are coming to Christ, he would head off to the next location, but he would leave someone and just say, hey, I I want you to stay here, I want you to build up the church, I I want you to establish this thing, and then later on you can join me. And so Paul would leave, and then they would just kind of establish something. Now, I don't know about you, but could you imagine uh, you come into this pagan nation, uh, you hear preaching for a couple of weeks, and the guy who starts it all just leaves? <laughs> the, the trust Paul had in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to continue the work is amazing to me. And one of the places that Paul went to was this place called Crete. It's an island in the Mediterranean. And the Cretans, which is still a horrible name for a group of people, uh, but these Cretans uh, we're, we're not a good bunch of people. Uh, they, what we find out in, in the book itself is that uh, these Cretans, <laughs> one, culturally that was a slang term. Uh, just like in Corinth, if you called someone a Corinthian, it was kind of a slap in the face. In a similar sense, if you called someone a Cretan, 
which is strange because I think we still use that term today. If you called someone a Cretan, basically what you were saying is that you were lazy, uh, that you were evil, that you were a liar, that you were no good. <laughs> what, a, what a name to be known by. And so Paul comes to this little island, Crete, and we, we know that some of the Cretans were up at Jerusalem for Pentecost uh, because in the Acts 2 scene where Peter is preaching, the Cretans are mentioned. So the likelihood is probably heard the message. Some of them came back. They began to start a church. Paul comes and establishes a church. But what was interesting is in this little place called Crete, uh, you had the Jewish concept that you have all these Jewish laws and traditions. It was creeping into the gospel where if you were going to become a believer, you had to become Jewish. You had to follow the law. You had, you had to wear the tassels. You had to keep the holidays. You had to do the Shabbat stuff. You had to you know, keep the dietary restrictions. And there was all this constraint, which the early church said, no, as a Gentile, you don't have to do that. Uh, we find out in the, in the letter that Paul's writing to Titus, one of the other issues is that the Gentiles were influencing the gospel to this idea that, hey, there's grace, and therefore, if God has given us grace, hey, why don't we just sin all the more? And so there was this license just to keep on sinning uh, that was happening in this place. Not only that, and I just think this is hilarious, Paul says, do you know what the Cretans even say about themselves? And in verse 12 of chapter 1, uh, Paul says, even one of their own, a prophet, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul says this, and this testimony is true. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Paul's like, you know what they said? They said they're horrible, they're evil, they're lazy, and they're passive and all this stuff. And Paul goes, mm-hmm, that's, that's very true of them. I, I spent two weeks there, and that's, that's who they are. You know? <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Crete has all of these problems. And so when, when, when Paul is trying to establish the church in Crete, he sends this young minister named Titus. Now, we know that Timothy and Titus and Silas were, were kind of Paul's inner three of the people he really poured into. There were some others. Luke followed Paul around quite a bit. But of these three ministers that Paul would often leave somewhere to establish something, it's interesting that he wrote both Timothy and Titus, these exhortations known as First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, scholars presume that First Timothy and Titus were written around the same time period. Uh, they were written right between Paul's imprisonments. In other words, we know the story in the book of Acts. Paul gets imprisoned, uh, goes off to Rome. He's, he's in house arrest, and that's where the, the book of Acts ends. But Christian tradition tells us that Paul was eventually freed. He went on some other missionary travels, likely ended up in Spain. And it was at, during that time period before he was rearrested, went back to Rome, and then eventually was, was killed, that he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Now, when you look at the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy is all about this idea of Timothy, you are to preach sound doctrine. And the whole focus is, hey, you need to establish something in the churches uh, in Ephesus, and you need to establish the doctrine because they've gotten away from it. The book of Titus, it's interesting, Paul is really emphasizing the sound doctrine, but for the purpose that you would live correctly as a Christian. And so as you get into the heart of Titus itself, the emphasis of Titus is proper living based on proper doctrine. Does that make sense? And so Paul then is looking at Titus saying, hey, I left you in Crete. As he says in verse 5, he says, I left you for a reason, and, and you're not fulfilling the reason I kept you there which is to, hey, I need you to appoint elders. I need you to set this thing in place. I need you to establish the doctrine. I need you to get them, hey, get them out of their sin and get them out of their junk so that the, that the Cretans would start to live correctly so that you can come back and join me. 
And so Paul is emphasizing this idea that, hey, there should be this proper behavior and a proper structure in your church. So that's kind of the big picture. All that being said, let's look at verse 1, which is what I want to focus on this morning. Uh, so with that as, a, as an overview, Paul says this at the very beginning of his letter. This is Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a bondservant or a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Do you hear how Paul introduces this whole thing? He says, Paul, a servant or a slave of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Uh, Paul does this in a lot of his writings. He introduces himself by kind of clarifying who he is. This was a modern, or this was a normal writing technique in this day. But he says, okay, this is who I am. This is who I'm writing to. I'm writing to you, oh dear Titus, for this reason. But Paul starts by saying, I'm a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You have to wonder, why would Paul, out of everything he could have said, why would Paul pick those two as his identity? Uh, we know that Paul was a Pharisee. We know that he was trained under the best schools, under one of the greatest rabbis of his day. Uh, we know that he had a right background. He had the right, he had the Roman citizenship. He had the right, he had the right everything. Uh, in fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about his resume or his pedigree, and, and this is what he says. Don't turn there, just listen. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. He says, Though I, ha I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in the flesh, I even have more. So in other words, he's saying, hey, if you think you've got something to brag about, pff, let me tell you about myself. And listen to what Paul says. And this should really impress you, okay? I was circumcised when I was eight days old. Now, I know that's probably not that impressive yet, but I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. In other words, Paul says, hey, I have this whole thing put together. If anyone could live out the Old Testament law, I was, I was performing it. I'm a Pharisee. I'm from the right tribe. I'm from the right background. I have the right pedigree. I, I, I have. And yet, he doesn't name a single one of those in the Titus. He doesn't talk about his education. He doesn't talk about his background. He, he doesn't talk about, you know, his, his, his awards, his doctorate degree. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't talk about any of his accomplishments, all the churches that he has started. What he identifies himself with, interestingly, is that I am a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And again, I just, that is so intriguing to me. Uh, that word slave, it's the Greek word doulos. Uh, that word, and I, and let me just say this. I know our culture does not like that word, uh, especially in our modern, <laughs> modern culture. <laughs> so crazy. Uh, we like the term servant. That sounds at least one degree better. Bond servant. Mm. But the moment we say slave, we're like, mm-mm. Because historically, America has some bad history with that term. But when you get into the heart of slavery, in, in Paul's context, he's talking about slavery. Now, it's slavery different than what we know. Uh, a lot of the Roman slaves were, were, they had their own homes, they had their own families, they came and they went. They, they were basically servants under a master. But the term that Paul is using when he's saying that I'm a slave of God, the word doulos actually has this idea of a galley slave. 
It's that idea of here's a slave down at the bottom of a boat, and what are they doing? Hey, they're having to row the boat. They're having to cook the food. They're having to whatever the master requires. And it seems, a lot of, it seems rather harsh, doesn't it? It's like, well, Paul, you know, culturally, <clears throat> we don't like that term. And what Paul says, but that's who I am. I am a slave of God. That my master is God himself. And so Paul is associating this Roman idea of a galley slave, this idea that, hey, I don't get to choose when I wake up. I don't get to choose when I go to bed. I don't get to choose what, what, I, what my profession is. I am, I am just at the disposal of my master. Uh, in fact, one of the Greek dictionaries, I, I thought this was such a great way of defining this word. It says, one who is solely committed to another. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? That this idea of a slave, a doulos, is one who is solely committed to another. That they only have an ear for one master. That they don't have multiple voices ringing in the ear saying, come here, do this, do that. That they only have one focus and one agenda and one master. And Paul says, that's who I am. And do you know who my master is? God. Do you know, do you know what I have ear for one voice? It's God's. I have one purpose. What is it? It's God's. Uh, Dan, uh, Dan McConaughey really helped me with this. He said, do you know what the number one phrase or term to identify Christians in the New Testament is? You would think it's like Christian, but that term's only used a couple of times. Well, it's believer, but that term's, I mean, it's just, that's, that's there a few times. The number one term that's used for a believer or a Christian in the New Testament, ironically, is the term slave which doesn't make most of us feel very good. <laughs> if you get it, it's like, uh-uh, no, no. And the reason is because, think about this, every time we call Jesus Lord or Master, the inference of that is that we are his slave. That if we are saying, Lord, you are my Lord, Jesus Christ the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, the inference of that, if he is Lord, if he is Master, then based on the culture, the cultural understanding of that, it is declaring that I am his slave, that I am at his disposal. That, again, as that dictionary said, I am the one who is solely committed to another. That I, I have one Lord and one master and one focus. And who is that? Jesus. So every time in prayer we say, oh, Lord, what are we saying? We're not just saying, oh, the high and lifted up one. What we are saying is, yes, you have a position but because you have a position, I have come under that authority, and I'm at your disposal. Here's my life. Do whatever you want with it. Now, it's interesting. As you go back into the Roman culture and you look at slavery, Roman culture demanded, think about this, Roman culture demanded that doesn't matter if you're a good master or a bad master. If you were a master legally, you had to always, 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 always provide three things for your slaves. You always had to provide protection, provision, and direction. You had to protect your slaves. You had to provide for your slaves. You had to give them food, right, and housing. And you had to give them direction, which makes sense. You're the master. You had to tell them what to do. So even bad masters had to give protection, provision, and direction to their slaves. But do you realize our Lord is not a bad master? He is the greatest, the kindest, the most loving master there could ever be. 
So even if bad masters culturally would give protection, provision, and direction, how much more would our loving God give protection, provision, and direction to those whom are his slaves? Do you realize that those are the same three things that shepherds give their sheep? A shepherd, if you're going to be a shepherd, you always have to give three things to your sheep. Protection. Hey, you've got to guard against the wolves and the lions and the bears. Hey, you've got to provide for them. You've got to lead them to the quiet waters. You've got to provide the grassy knolls so they can eat. And you have to give them direction. You are the shepherd. And Jesus says, do you know who I am? I am the great shepherd. I'm not even a good shepherd. I am the great shepherd. It is the superlative of all superlative shepherds. He is by far the greatest shepherd of all shepherds. So even if a bad shepherd is at least going to give his sheep protection and provision and direction, how much more would our great shepherd give protection and provision and direction to his sheep? And do you know how many times you're called sheep in Scripture? A lot. And sheep are dumb. Sheep need protection, provision, and direction. I mean, I have never, ever heard of a wild flock of sheep. There is no such thing. That's impossible. Because sheep, sheep demand a shepherd. You will never see a wild flock of sheep anywhere. Why? Because they are stupid. I've never had a sheep, but I've seen some, and they are dumb. And everyone I've ever met that has ever raised sheep, they're like, oh my goodness, they are so dumb. And I don't think that's an accident that God's like, you are the sheep on my pasture. <laughs> you, know? you guys are dumb. But I'm a great shepherd. And do you realize that just as, and, I, and again, I don't think that's by accident that we're called sheep. Not just because of the dumb thing. But, <laughs> but do you realize that sheep demand a shepherd? The way that sheep were designed, the way that God created sheep, is that sheep have to have a shepherd. And when God says, you are my sheep, what he's telling us is, do you know how I made you? You weren't made for independence. You weren't made to just function on your own. You were made to come under my authority and be my sheep. Would you let me give protection, provision, and direction to your life? Isn't it ironic? And th this is something that Dan said that just really stood out to me. Isn't it interesting that the thing that we pray most about is for protection, provision, and direction? God, I really need you to save me right now. I need protection. Lord, I really need some provision. I, I know you have the cattle on a thousand hills, so if you could kill one of those, I could really use it right now. I need some provision. I need some finances. I need some resource. Come on, God. I need, God, what is your will for my life? Could you just give me a burning bush? Could you give me a neon sign in the sky? Could you give me some sort of direction? Could you give me some clarity? Don't we pray this all the time? And yet in so praying, we forget that he is a good shepherd, that, that he is a loving father, that, that he is a great master. And even bad ones are going to get protection, provision, and direction. So shouldn't we just rest and be at peace and have calm by the fact that our God who knows the intricacies of our life is going to graciously and bountifully give us protection, provision, and direction? With all that being said, let me read Psalm 23 afresh. I know you know this psalm. But I, I just want you to hear this afresh. Because the whole, Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, 
we, we know that and we quote that and we say that, but, but I want you to ponder this in light of this concept of, of slavery or this concept of being a sheep, that the fact that here is our great shepherd and he wants to give us protection and provision and direction. So listen to what David, a shepherd, says about his great shepherd. So with all that as a context, listen to this. Psalm 23. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that incredible? David is saying, oh God, you are my shepherd. That you give me everything that I need. Or as Peter would say, you've given me everything I need for life and godliness. That, that you have supplied, that you have protected, that you have directed my life. And, or as Paul would say, Lord, you are my Lord. I am your slave. My life is yours. Uh, I, I just recently finished a biography uh, called Expendable. It was written by Philip Keller, the same guy who wrote uh, Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And an incredible book. It's all about the story of L.E. Maxwell and Prairie Bible Institute. And uh, up in uh, Alberta, Canada, uh, Prairie Bible Institute was started. It started as a little tiny little college school for missionaries. And, and man, there's some great people who came out of that. Like Elizabeth Elliot went there, and Don Richardson went there, and I believe Philip Keller went there. And you have these great people. And, and the heart of L.E. Maxwell is just, man, it's been such a blessing to me. I'm, I'm pondering including him as my next snuggle buddy. I just have, if, if, never mind. Uh, <laughs> sounds, it's context thing. Sorry, for all those who are like, what on earth? Sorry, let, let me, let's get back on track. But, but, but Ellie Maxwell is just this fiery little preacher who loves the word of God and passionately, passionately loves Jesus. And, and through his life and through his testimony and through his words and Man, man the, the missionary movement that came out of Prairie Bible Institute back in the mid-1900s just radically changed the face of the earth. But it's interesting, Philip Keller was writing about the story of this whole thing, and the reason he called the book Expendable is he says that was the heart of the missionary movement that Ellie Maxwell started. And so he defined, uh, he defined, in fact, let me just read the quote to you. This was just, this was just mind-boggling to me. Uh, he quotes Webster's Dictionary, uh, and he says th this is the definition of expendable in Webster's New World Dictionary. In military usage, it designates equipment or men considered replaceable and therefore worth sacrificing to gain an objective. So to be expendable means you are replaceable. That, that, yeah, you're important. But you're so important that we're going to let you go and we're going to waste your life because that's actually going to help us get to the end game of winning the battle. Isn't that interesting? And so this, this was his statement off of that about this whole book. This is the introduction thing. 
He says, this book, expendable, is the account of the soldiers of the cross who consider themselves and their possessions expendable in order that Christ's commission to the church might be fulfilled. He says, you know what's happening up there in Alberta? There, there was this whole group of, of students who just had this passion for Jesus that they just says, you know what, Lord, here I am. Take my life, take my possessions, take my time. Just, hey, would you, would you take everything that I have and everything that I own, and will you, just, will you just spend that however you want to spend it for the sake of your kingdom? Well, what if you're never known? That's not, that's not my agenda. Well, what if there's never a biography written about you? That's not even my agenda. What is my agenda? I'm replaceable. Hey, Lord, if you need to send someone to the front lines to, 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 to radically change the world for your kingdom, I'm in. What was it going to cost me? Everything. Could you imagine a whole group of people getting together with that kind of philosophy, that mindset, that just say, Lord, here I am. I am fully surrendered and given unto you. My, my all is yours. My time, my money, my resource, my life is yours. So, Lord, however you want to spend it, however you want to spill it, I'm all in. Well, if you've got a group of people like that together, do you know what we'd have to call them? Probably the church, <laughs> as, as the church is supposed to be. But that's the whole mindset of that slave mentality. Paul says, look, I am a slave of God. Lord, here I am. I'm at your disposal. Spill and spend my life for the king and for the kingdom. How, whatever you want to do with my life, God, whatever you want to do with my possessions, whatever you want to do with my time, whatever you want to do with my resource, hey, whatever you want to do with my whatever, Lord, I am available to you for your end. I don't care about the applause. I don't care about the awards. I, I don't care about the prestige. I don't, I don't care about popularity. I, I don't care. I, Lord, what I care about is for you and for your glory to be seen and evidenced in my life. By the way, we call that Christianity. And Paul says, at the very heart of my identity, I am a slave of God. I'm at his disposal. Now, not only does he bring up the slave idea, he says, Paul, this is Titus 1, verse 1, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, apostle, it's interesting, we know that there were the 12 apostles, Right? And around here, we've often called it the capital A Apostle. Uh, these are the guys who walked with Jesus, were taught by Jesus. They had the authority, right, of, of you know, to dictate the church and, and to write scripture. And, and Paul was included in that group. Hey, we understand that. Uh, there was these other apostles, which we around here have often called the lowercase apostle, that they didn't have the capital A authority, for example, to write scripture, right? But, the, but they, had, they, they had a message. That word, apostolos, the word apostle, really, when you get down to it, is this idea of a messenger, a, a delegate, uh, an envoy. It's someone who was sent with a message. What is Paul saying? Well, Paul says, here I am. I am a messenger. I am a delegate of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that Paul had authority. He could, he could march into churches, and like in, in Corinth, right? He's correcting certain things, right? That he had a position of authority. Hey, he wrote scripture, he had some capital A authority. But do you realize that capital A or lowercase a, all apostles are under the authority of someone? Why? They're messengers. They are a delegate. Uh, a king sends off his, his guy to go to this other king, right? 
It's this ambassador idea. It's this envoy idea. Paul says, do you know who I am? I am a messenger. I'm a delegate. I'm an envoy of Jesus Christ. I'm not the one in charge. I'm under the authority. Yes, I have some authority. But I am under the authority of the authority, of the messenger. And that messenger has given me a message for me to proclaim. Doesn't that sound like the slave idea? Paul says, hey, I'm not the one in charge. I I am merely a slave, a servant of the king. And he has given me a message, and I'm marching out into this world, and I am proclaiming the message. Well, you got to ask the question then, well, what is the message that Paul was proclaiming? Do you realize that Paul had one topic he could never get off of? There was like one thing that he was constantly talking about. It just drives you crazy when, when one person has one gong, and all they're doing is hitting that dong, gong every single time. Every time Paul stood up to speak, he only spoke about one thing. Do you know what it was? No, one, no one's going to guess. Oh, I'll just tell you. The one thing that Paul always talked about, Jesus. You would think eventually you would graduate to something beyond that, wouldn't you? And yet for Paul, Jesus was the totality of the message. In fact, listen to this. Paul says this in Ephesians. Uh, this is Ephesians 3, verse 6 through 9. This is Paul's declaration of what the message that God had given him to speak was. He says that his preaching, that his message was that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body. Now that's crazy. Because the Gentiles were always excluded. The Gentiles always were out there somewhere. Hey, the Gentiles were the fuel for the fires of hell stuff. And yet Paul says, do you know what the message God gave me was? Woo! They get to be included. Which should be exciting for us because we're Gentiles, folks. (laughs) But he says, and not only are they part of the body, but they're fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his mighty power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light for all what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. And as you look at this idea of the mystery, Paul says, you know what the whole mystery is all about? Jesus. Do you know what the one thing God has been saying throughout all of Scripture has been? Jesus. Do you know what the one thing I'm going to preach all about is? Jesus. Do you know what the whole focus and the goal of my life is going to be? Jesus. And you don't look convinced, so let me give you some more passages. Philippians 3.10. Paul says, you know what my dream is? Do you know what my desire, what the throb of my heart is? He says that I might know Jesus. And that word know, again, is just that intimate, experiential kind of knowledge. It's not knowing about Jesus. It's intimately knowing Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Paul says, I know this doesn't make sense, but I only preach Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you realize that Paul's big message was Jesus? There, there was one thing Paul could never get over. It was Jesus, 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 Jesus. Every time you'd hear Paul preach, it was the same message. He might use different texts. It's the same message. Jesus. Every worship song that Paul allowed in the service, 
If it wasn't about Jesus, psst, we're not singing it. Wouldn't it be neat if we had that same mentality? I don't know about you, you, know, you listen to YouTube preachers, don't, don't do this. But if you turn on YouTube and you go to the preaching stuff once in a while, there is so much garbage. There, there is so much. Paul says, hey, we don't preach ourselves. And yet I turn on YouTube and it's like, you don't even say Jesus. You don't even bring up scripture. Do you know what I hear? Me, 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 me. And we have the whole opposite message of what Paul was preaching. We, we are preaching all this craziness and yet we're missing the whole focus of the scriptures. See, I would desire, and that's one of the reasons I love our church, but see, my desire is that anytime a sermon is preached, there's only one message, Jesus. So if you don't like that message, quit showing up. Hey, if we're going to sing a song, you know what we're going to sing about? Jesus. Hey, if we're going to pray, guess who we're praying to? Jesus. Hey, if we're gathering together and we're having fellowship, what should that fellowship be focused on? The weather. <laughs> No, that's stupid. Jesus. See, wouldn't it be neat if your whole life, like Paul, was wrapped up in one thing? Jesus. So think about this. Paul, even though he had all this pedigree, all this background, all this education, all this, none of that he brings up as his identity in this letter. He's writing to Titus, and he says, Titus, just want to remind you who I am. I am not my own. I'm a slave. That I, I've got one master. I'm under his authority. He can do whatever he wants with my life. Paul says, I am expendable. I, I have given myself fully under the authority of Christ Jesus, and he can do whatever he wants with my life. Yes, I'm an apostle, but as such, I have come under his authority. He is the authority in my life, and, and I am merely the messenger, the delegate, the, the delegate, the envoy, to bring forth the message of Christ to this world. Paul says, that's my identity. Maybe if I can summarize it this way. Paul says, do you know what my identity is, Titus? Jesus. That's Titus 1, verse 1. Now, let's take that. Let's come into our world. Isn't it interesting that identity seems like it is a hot topic in today's world? I hear that term all the time. What's my identity? Identity, 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 identity. And culturally, our identity is all wrapped up in our profession. You know, what we do, it's written up in our pedigree, right? Our family kind of stuff. It's, it's in my talents. It's in my education. It's in, it's in everything about my life. It's about my hardships or my addictions. It's about my habits. It's about my, those are my identities. But you realize that none of that biblically should be my identity. Uh, isn't it interesting? I just find this hilarious. That most of the people what we know in the Bible, we often know because of their problems. Now, we know guys like Abraham and Noah. We know their names. But then there's all these other people that we know them by their issues. Blind Bartimaeus. Do you realize how horrible of a title or an identity that is? Because he's not blind. He was healed blind. He was the healed from his blindness. He's healed Bartimaeus. But yeah, we know him as blind Bartimaeus. The prodigal son. No, he returned home. He's not a prodigal son. The woman with the blood issue. Yeah, but that was healed. And do you realize we do the same thing in our, in our, in our mindsets? Uh, for whatever reason, it's like we take our habits or we take our problems or we take our addictions and that has so defined our lives that we are known by that. Uh, for example, uh, I used to work with a lot of homeless guys and, and alcoholics and that kind of stuff. 
And it's so interesting to me. You talk to an alcoholic and you're like, hey, so tell me about yourself. Well, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Okay, well, how long have you been recovering? 45 years. Well, when's the last time you had a drop of alcohol? 30 years ago. So let me get this right. You haven't had any alcohol for 30 years. Correct. Then you're not an alcoholic. I know that sounds stupid. Now, I understand in the AA program, I understand why, I understand why, I understand the language. I do, I do, I do, I think it's stupid, <laughs> personally. Because I don't see that in here, folks. See, what I see in Scripture is that I had a life prior to Christ, and it was full of chaos and full of addiction and full of all these problems. It's full of sin. But I come to Jesus, and Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Woo! Do you realize that when you come to Jesus, everything changes? So here I was in my sin and my problems, and woo, I come to Jesus, and Paul says, I have stepped over a line, and who that was over there no longer defines me over here. Does that make any sense? That was really fun, by the way. That somehow, that whatever defined my life here, and whatever the names and the identity I have had over here, the moment I come to Christ, do you realize he radically changes your life? So much so, Paul says that, you're a new creature, or better stated, you're a new creation. And yeah, you may look the same, and you may smell the same, but you are not the same, because your identity has changed. See, what would happen if I began to realize that the stuff that used to always empower and control and dictate my life, what if I began to realize that in Jesus, that stuff actually has no authority? That, that when I get into Romans chapter 6, that, that I am not to submit myself under the authority of sin. I am to get myself under the authority of Christ. That I am a slave of Christ, Paul says. And as such, he is the master, not my sin. See, isn't it interesting? If I, if I consider myself a recovering alcoholic, then when I see, when I see alcohol, I immediately I go, oh, don't do that. Oh. And it becomes my struggle. Why? Because that's my, that's my identity. And I'm resisting that. Well, I'm a recovering pornographer. So, hey, well, there's this lust. Oh, no, I'm not going to. Uh. See, what if, what if the reality of Christ is that he actually is bigger and more powerful than our junk? And whatever used to define my life, God has so radically changed me that in Christ, I really am a new creature. See, what would happen if I am no longer the alcoholic, I'm no longer the pornographer, I am a child of God. So when alcohol, okay, that may have been a part of my past life, but when alcohol presents itself, it actually changes my struggle with it. See, if I'm a recovering alcoholic, I have to grip my teeth, I gotta slap my hand, I gotta take the cold showers, I gotta, uh, why? Because that's my temptation. But what if I've been changed? And if I am in Christ and alcohol presents itself, then no longer am I like, oh, now it's like, well, that's not who I am. And I've actually been freed from that power. And I no longer have to sub submit myself under that power. Why? Because my identity is now in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that that is all over this thing? Paul, over and over and over and over again, says, do you know what your identity is in? Jesus. How do you define your life? Jesus. What's your position? In Jesus. That word, in Christ, in, 
Uh, in Greek, it's the, it's the word in. <laughs> Brilliant, I know. Uh, but it's spelled E-N, in. And the idea of in is this idea of resting. It, it, there's, there's not movement. For example, you all came in to this room today. That's not this term. See, that's movement. There's a different word for that in Greek. See, the idea of in is that you are seated in your chair. What are you doing? Some of you are sleeping. Right? You're just, you're, you're resting. You're, you're, you're taking the weight off of your, off your feet and you're just, oh, you're there. See, that's the idea of in. See, what if we had that in Jesus? See, this isn't a pop in, pop out of Jesus. This is, hey, what if you would just sink down into and just rest and just, oh, and he becomes the totality of your life. He becomes the identity of your life. He becomes the focus of your life. By the way, we call those people Christians. Can I ask you, what is your identity? See, when you think about yourself, is your mindset wrapped up in your past? Is it wrapped up in your family? Is it wrapped up in your education? Is it wrapped up in your talent? Is it wrapped up in your profession? Is it wrapped up? What is your identity? When someone says, hey, who are you? What is the first thing you gravitate to? Now, in American society, <coughs> excuse me, in American society, we typically default to our profession. Who are you? Well, I, I, I do these things. But biblically, you're not defined by what you do. Biblically, you're defined by who you are. And who I am is I am a child of God redeemed by faith in him. The power of the gospel has radically changed my life, and I am seated in Christ, and everything has changed in my life. See, what if we begin to realize that our identity is supposed to be in Jesus? Can I ask you, if anything in your life defines your life rather than Jesus, you need to change your identity See, wouldn't it be neat if you had an identity like Paul that just said, Lord, here I am. I am your slave. I am expendable. Here's my life. I'm all in. I'm fully surrendered. Do whatever you want with my life. Lord, you have given me a message. It's called the gospel. And I'm called to take that gospel into the world. And that may mean I need to go to my next door neighbor. Maybe that means I need to go to Africa. But the reality is, is that we all have a message that we have been given. It's called truth is called the gospel and we are called to proclaim that gospel you are an envoy and a messenger of the king and it's interesting that paul's identity even though he had all this great stuff in his past he did not define himself by his past he defined himself by jesus what if that was true in your life would you be willing to give up your identity as the whatever as that intellect or that profession or that habit, and fully give yourself to Jesus and just say, Jesus, here I am. Do what you want with me. Paul says, I'm a slave and an apostle. And folks, that should be our identity. I am his, he is mine, and I am at his disposal. Would you embrace Jesus afresh this morning? Would you, would you allow him to shift your thinking and get out of the prosperity mindset that our culture has so propagated? And would you allow him to give you a fresh vision that your life is supposed to be centered and focused on one thing? Jesus. And I love the fact that Paul starts the whole message of his book with that focus. Because what you're going to hear from the rest of the book is that one focus. 
Titus, do you know what I'm calling you to? That focus. Hey, do you know what the church leadership is supposed to be in the church? That focus. That they are to be wrapped up in one thing, Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, we need you. Man, our, our focus is so often distracted. Man, we're so wrapped up in so many things. Our identity is all over the place. In fact, culturally, we don't even know what identity means anymore, and we can redefine who we want to be just by, based on our temperament and our emotional state at the moment. That, that we can change, pop in, pop out, the gender thing. The, I mean, the, hey, Lord, we are so confused as a culture. And even as believers, Lord, we're, we're sometimes so wrapped up in our identity being what we do, our, our, our identity being that, uh, that accomplishment, our identity being that, that thing that we have, our identity is in that past, our identity is in that habit, our identity is in that whatever. Lord, could it be that what you have called us to is to have a single identity, a single focus, and that is you are to be the focus, that you are to be preeminent, that you are to be the identity of our lives. Lord, could you let us realize like Paul that we, we are to be your slaves. And though that sounds harsh in our culture, Lord, I pray that we would grab a hold of the concept that if you truly are Lord, that means we are your slaves. That you are the great, good shepherd. And as such, we are the sheep of your pasture and we desperately desperately need a shepherd that will give us protection and provision and direction because we are helpless, foolish on our own. Lord, would you let us realize, like Paul, that, that you have given us a message. And I understand we're not capital A apostles. I, I get that. But Lord, we, we, do, we do have a message. We do have truth that you have deposited within our soul and you have commanded us to proclaim that to the world. Lord, could you shift and change our focus, our identity, the very depths of our being to the point where you and you alone have center place, where you and you alone are the high and lifted up one in our lives. That when we say that we are in Christ, it's not just some great statement, it's not just great some hope or aspiration, it's the reality of our lives that we are resting, that we are just, oh, that we find our identity in you. And Lord, I do pray that if any of us have those entanglements, those strongholds from the past, Lord, would you not only set us free from those chains, but Lord, that you would shift our focus and shift our identity, that our identity is not in things that we once did, but that rather we are in Christ Jesus, that we are a new creation in you. Behold, all things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Lord, that is not just a great refrigerator statement. That should be the reality of our souls. So, Lord, whatever is necessary to, to bring that about, to accomplish that in our lives, Lord, we just want to freshly humble ourselves and say, Lord, we need you. Lord, you are worthy and you are good. And we do thank you for just the opportunity that you have made every provision possible for you to be the fullness of our lives. Oh, it's so awesome. We love you, Jesus.
We just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray.